I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. Planning makes it possible to manage the entire life cycle of a potential crisis. Strategic and operational planning establishes priorities, like what should we do first? Identifies expected levels of performance and capability requirements, like who and what do we need to bring in to help, but also how much of those things do we need? The plan provides the standard for assessing each responder's capabilities and helps stakeholders learn their roles and what is expected of them in a specific emergency. There's an old adage that if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Well, in disasters, failure is not an option. So of the many disasters or crises that might occur in the world, you have to think through what that given disaster might look like, decide what success would look like, and then plan for what resources, including expertise, you might need to get the job done. But once you do that, all those participants need to develop their own procedures for how they are going to be successful in their piece of the response. On this episode, Josh Dozer, Director of the Planning and Exercise Division at FEMA Headquarters, joins the FEMA podcast for a look at how FEMA and its partners plan for a variety of disaster and emergency scenarios. Some you would expect, but others you might be surprised by. From hurricanes to space weather or tornadoes to Ebola, this episode of the FEMA podcast is all about disaster planning. All right, Josh Dozer, thanks so much for joining the FEMA podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Josh, you are the director of planning and exercises at FEMA, but also during response time, you're the chief of the National Response Coordination Center. So I would guess in your dual role of uh, sort of peacetime or non-disaster time and then disaster time, you get to take the plans that your team gets to develop and actually start to implement them at the National Coordination Center. Yeah, it's it's actually sometimes kind of stressful because you become your own worst critic of what you just developed and you're reviewing and trying to use the plan and you're like, oh, I wish I did this differently or I wish the plan said this. The helpful part about that is that going through the operations, it returns and how we improve the way we build and develop our plans for the future. So we use our instance to, to refine and improve the plans of the future. Well, then that makes sense why you would have that sort of dual role there. And there's so many plans that FEMA develops. And I think there are also a lot of plans that the public would be really interested to know that we're thinking about. I mean, I think people think that FEMA is looking at hurricanes and, and earthquakes and tornadoes and that type of response planning. But there are a variety of different plans out there that we're looking at. It's fun. It keeps on your toes. One day, one hour I'm working on improvised nuclear device detonation. Next day I'm working on an earthquake annex issue. Next day I'm working on uh, a migration matter or space weather or food ag. Uh, it's, it's constantly a learning experience. So I thought what we could do here with this conversation is kind of run through some of the more unique planning endeavors that FEMA goes through, um, such as solar weather. Let's start there. Let's start with solar weather and what FEMA does to plan for the impacts of that. Well, this is a good example of where a plan is not just to inform operations. Obviously, you want it to inform operations to be useful for that but it's also a, an opportunity to educate a community on a risk that they don't may not know anything about, uh, a unique hazard, a rare hazard. Um, to, to understand different types of information and situational awareness reports and, and complexities that are not commonly known. Uh, 
The trick here with space weather is that there's there could be very little warning. Uh, you know, we, we're just starting to measure the sun and understand the sun. And we might have 10 to 15 hours of warning that a coronal mass ejection might erupt, but then we might only have 30 or 45 minutes to understand that it might have direct impacts on us. And then at the same time, our understanding or modeling of what physical impacts we might experience as a result of a, a coronal mass ejection from the sun is really not well known. We're still in the studying and research and understanding phase. Talk about what we do know about the impacts uh, on Earth from those types of ejections. Well, we've, we, the history has, if you look back at history and the and, uh, impacts to infrastructure in the past, there have been solar weather incidents in the past, uh, big ones. Uh, the Carrington uh, example scenario is the one that's reused over and over again. But our infrastructure was in the telegraph stage at the time. So what would be its impact with modern technology and modern infrastructure? Uh, our reliance on GPS satellites, our reliance on uh, the upload and download of information, um, our just-in-time expectations to have information at our fingertips. Uh, we're not really sure what the physical impacts will actually be. The, 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 the grid, how secure or resilient is our grid? In one way, we're more reliant on the power infrastructure, so we're more vulnerable. But on the other hand, our grid infrastructure is being developed and maintained to be more robust every day. And our the utilities' understanding of what to do to protect their sector uh, improves every day. So the impacts could range from not at all. In fact, they instances happen all the time, but you don't even realize it. Um, a, ge a, a, ge a geomagnetic storm of one or two or three happens pretty regularly. Uh, we had a geomagnetic storm of four during Hurricane Maria, and we were worried that we, there would be impacts, and there ultimately were not substantial impacts. Uh, the most significant impacts we've received lately have been disruptions to our communications. So th that's the type of thing that you'd be looking at in the plan for uh, a solar weather event? Yeah, so we'll be looking at, let's, let's imagine that the, the biggest one happened, the ge uh, geomagnetic five storm, solar storm five. Um, the trick here in the, in, the, in the space weather planning is how do we coordinate with the private sector who owns the infrastructure to have them ramp up and begin their protective actions to secure the infrastructure. Because we don't own the infrastructure. Uh, we rely on the utilities. So the plan weighs heavily on our coordination with the owners and operators to make precautions themselves, and then to quickly get ready and transition to response mode. And the way we would respond after the incident is much the same we would respond to an earthquake or a hurricane. Oh, so you're looking at not just the power outage aspect, but you also mentioned the communications aspect. So is it the same there? You're working with the private sector to get uh, identify what those impacts could be and then try to work with them to figure out how to get them back up on online? Exactly. So if we had noticed, we would have to work closely with the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, the FCC, for them to sync up with their sector partners so they would respond in a similar fashion, that they would take, take protective action. So, so, for example, the FAA may instruct the airlines to adjust their courses of, of travel or to change the elevations of travel. Uh, the FCC or the Department of Energy might instruct their partners to either turn off certain systems or to uh, elevate the power in certain systems so they can withstand a higher load of energy going through the systems. These are the types of protective measures and partnerships we need to have in place with the private sector more and more. That's a, an example of a situation where we might experience a major outage of those uh, entities like power and, and communications. 
but there, you also are planning for certain um, uh, nuclear and radiological events, sort of like an improvised nuclear device, which is a very scary uh, possibility, but it leads to some very interesting planning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the nuclear radiological planning um, it was one of the first instant annexes we built, and this is all available on our Internet site, and you can Google it and find it on the FEMA website. Uh, but this is the one that forced us to really grapple with an untenable situation that forces us to set priorities uh, to do the most good for the greatest number of affected survivors. Um, it, it, would, it would force us to respond in a manner that we don't traditionally respond. I'll give you an example. During a hurricane or earthquake, we rush to send search and rescue. We rush to send medical personnel to save lives. For a nuclear device kind of situation, our priority is to get situational awareness to understand where the radiation plume will go and to instruct citizens to shelter in place, to, to go inside, stay inside, and stay tuned for instructions. Um, and that's where we're going to save the most lives. And then we have to understand the situation so that we could move from the outside in and stage our resources in areas where we could do the most good for the most amount of people. It's really going to stress our capabilities. It's really going to stress our abilities to work in concert with the Department of Defense, uh, it's, it also presents a lot of new capabilities or unique capabilities that we don't traditionally respond with to be brought into the fight. I would assume it also brings in a lot of partners that maybe aren't necessarily responding in a typical tornado or maybe hurricane event. Exactly. So it changes the priorities of what we move, what assets we move, what we stage, and what order. Uh, it's also going to require us to stage a unique suite of resources that we don't only apply like uh, personal protective equipment and uh, dosimeters to, to track radiation exposure of our responders and our citizens. Uh, and plus, you have to remember that you know if some of these scenarios occur, it's a, it's a result usually of a it's likely to be a result of a, a, an act of terrorism. So there's a law enforcement angle to this. We have to work in concert with the FBI, with Department of Defense, other lead federal agencies. It's not just. Uh, an earthquake where FEMA is the lead role, the lead coordinator, is multiple lead coordinators in that type of incident. Earlier on, you mentioned uh, one planning uh, that I, I just really didn't think about, and what, that's food and agriculture. So what kind of events are we talking about there? So food agriculture is an interesting one. We're in, we're in the uh, final development phase of this, of this incident annex. Uh, we worked closely with the uh, U.S. Department uh, of Agriculture and the FDA. Uh, as the lead federal agencies on this. What's unique about food ag is that there's actually different sub-plans within food ag. Uh, you, need a, you need a branch to focus just on the food subsector. You need a branch to focus just on the plant subsector, uh, just on the animal subsector. And of course, again, if there's intentional actions, it changes the whole concept of operations and lead agencies as well. Uh, the other thing that's unique about food ag is uh, the phases are very different from our traditional response. In a tornado, the period of uh, the period of response is days, if maybe a, a week. Uh, hurricane, it could be days of weeks. Uh, an earthquake, it could be maybe months. For a food ag incident, it could be years. Uh, the other the other element uh, of unique that's unique to food ag is that uh, it's almost completely private sector run. There are food agricultural incidents all the time. You get notices of a salmonella scare and in all different types of produce, and you get those notif notifications, and there, are, the sector is responding all the time. The infrastructure is set up to respond all the time. Uh, so we are not technically the lead in most of those scenarios. Uh, so we have to learn 
how we complement and support and supplement what the private sector is already doing. Uh, the, the areas where it would be of biggest concern in a food or agriculture incident is where it's large scale, it's affecting survivors, it's affecting businesses where there is, there could be a, a significant unemployment, which requires individual assistance and mass care assistance. But uh, this is a unique one. We have not really been hit hard with a, with a really bad food agricultural incident that requires FEMA to coordinate a federal response. So if FEMA were involved in a response like that, uh, are, we, are we talking not just about the coordination role of FEMA, but maybe commodities that would have to be brought in to sort of replace the food uh, loss that is maybe not there for in a community? It all depends on how badly impacted the community is. But traditionally, the sector, the food supply sector, will do its job to route the supply chain to to restock the supplies and, and provide its commercial services to to uh, to Americans. You know, the private sector, it's in their best interest to adjust and accommodate the supply chain to do the most good. So it's likely that they won't expect us to do to stand up kitchens and mass feeding operations like we see in an earthquake or hurricane. We instead we're gonna have to find a way to enable the those private sector partners to be successful. Do they need regulatory relief? Do they need security measures? Do they need uh, lodging issues? Uh, this is the type of area where we, we have to uh, adjust our thinking to how we enable the sectors to be successful. So each of those different uh, planning activities that we just mentioned, they all sort of revolve around some type of scenario, right? So how do you build or help, try to understand that base scenario that you're planning towards? How is that developed? Um, it's, it's actually... It's an interesting process because it requires a great deal of negotiation um, with our partners. Uh, each lead federal agency has their own interests and agenda and objectives and goals for their planning initiative. Uh, a couple things you also have to keep in mind is we want the scenario to sufficiently test our capabilities and stress our capabilities to, we, to force us to th- consider the full suite of operations, the full suite of capabilities that might need to be uh, brought to bear. But on the other hand, if it's too bad, it actually interferes with our ability to execute our operations and to and to do what our, do our job and uh, in execution of our normal authorities. So it's a balancing. So it's a constant balancing and negotiation we we play with our partners. Um, and more and more, we're using national labs um, modeling uh, um, uh, tools and capabilities to 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 display different types of scenarios. Sometimes we'll look at multiple scenarios. Uh, we could have sequels. We could have branches. Um, my, our rule of thumb is we try to create the plausible worst-case scenario where it's plausible, it's a likelihood of occurring, but it's a worst-case scenario where it tests our assumptions and challenges our assumptions. The plan, a pitfall that we'll fall into, if we're not careful, is to ha- plan to an assumption that's too safe. Or vice versa, plan to an assumption that is too sort of sci-fi, I would guess. Right, and at the result, you'll have a plan that will never be used or won't be useful. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Let's talk about a couple of other non-traditional or kind of unique disaster situations. Uh, a couple of years ago, we saw an Ebola outbreak in Africa. And so was FEMA thinking through the impacts that might uh, happen if uh, that disease were to able to travel uh, across continents? Yes, yeah, so this was a really interesting, this was a really interesting uh, incident. Uh, first of all, even before the Ebola, if you take us back before the Ebola incident occurred, we just started doing a biological incident planning. Uh, 
based upon anthrax scenarios. And we were working with the public health community and we were using the planning function as a vehicle to merge and integrate the public health discipline with the emergency management discipline. And we were developing medical countermeasures dispensing plans in cities. And one of those cities was Dallas, uh, Fort Worth area, uh, not knowing Ebola would occur. Uh, Ebola pops up. Next thing you know, FEMA is, is forced into a crisis action planning mode. In other words, we don't have a plan for every scenario, nor do we want to have a plan for every situation. We need to be able to adapt our plans to the requirements and characteristics of the situation. Ebola forced us to do that. Uh, but because of the medical countermeasure planning and biological incidents general planning we were doing with the states beforehand, a lot of the coordination constructs and unity of effort between those two communities, public health and emergency management, were made. And I, I believe that the planning that was done before Ebola on anthrax actually helped us gain speed and achieve unity of effort quicker than we would in Ebola. Some of the things that were unique to Ebola that we had to perform crisis action planning for was uh, our support to multiple different lead federal agencies. So HHS, obviously, for the public health crisis, but also Department of State on the repatriation of U.S. citizens and, also, and the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection on the receipt and processing of travelers coming through our U.S. ports. So as the travelers were coming into our U.S. ports, they had to be coordinated with the states and locals uh, to, to uh, screen them, make sure they don't have symptoms of Ebola, and if they did, where they would go and how they would be cared for. Or uh, they weren't in a risk area at some point. And not to expose other people. Right. Uh, so all that required crisis action planning, and we actually employed some preparedness drills and some training and just-in-time exercises within those major ports of entry for that are receiving uh, travelers from Africa uh, to make sure we were all on the same page and set up for that. There's probably a lot of events that just sort of um, uh, pop up or uh, evolve very, very rapidly. Ebola doesn't strike me as necessarily one of those. Ebola sort of strikes me as one that we, yes, it, it sort of comes along very quickly, but it's further away from our shores, so we have some time to anticipate it. But there's probably a lot of events here on, on the U.S. soil that maybe evolve very rapidly. I'm thinking of uh, the explosion in West Texas, um, uh, which was, a, I think, a chemical plant. Uh, it, it was a major operation that was mostly facilitated by locals, but then FEMA also did have a role in that one. Uh, there's been space shuttle disasters where FEMA's had a role, um, and even some water crises uh, in, in certain select cities that um, FEMA had to play a, some sort of a support role to the state. So is that critical action planning process, is that what you use for those types of events that evolve very quickly that maybe we didn't foresee or couldn't think through ahead of time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, your goal is for the plan to outline your constant operations and just to help you get unique effort with your, with your different agencies and with the state's uh, at the outset, but you always have to adapt it. Um, for the for the West Texas explosion, you know that was not a it was not a large scale uh, incident, and we would not have a plan for that. But we were able to adapt our all hazards plan, our all hazards emergency operations plan, and the oil chemical incident annexes that we have uh, for that effort. Um, spatial disaster that's a unique one because it forces us to apply these concepts for a single disaster and apply it over multiple states area. Uh, also involving ha very hazardous materials, even radio radio radiological materials, nuclear materials. 
So we have to take bits and pieces of sometimes multiple plans uh, and, and form that together into an incident action plan for, during an incident to be applied. For example, for, uh, you might take the unique radiological nuclear capabilities and defense capabilities that are in a rad nuke plan um, for the spatial disaster, but then apply a biological concept for coordination because it expands multiple different areas of responsibility, multiple jurisdictions, and multiple regions. So you have this uh, document that's put together, this planning document uh, that's based on these scenarios. You've thought through it with experts. You've thought through some of the preparedness activities and, the, and what you anticipate the response activities to be. How do you translate the plan uh, or deliver the plan or help the leader of the event uh, execute that plan in a, in a meaningful way going forward to help citizens? The first way to do the, the first way you should be doing that is socializing the plans even before an incident, and this is an area where we honestly we have room for improvement. We should we could always do better on. Uh, we need to better train to the plans that we have. We need to better socialize on the plans we have, um, and make sure our senior leadership is is up to speed with the concepts and requirements that are in there. So it requires less lead up time once the incident occurs uh, to be able to execute. Uh, during it, it sounds like it, it's like uh, the adage: the plan doesn't really do any good if it's just gathering dust on a shelf. Yeah, you, you got to pull gotta it out. It, you got to take gotta, it down. You got to talk about it. And there's there's so many competing requirements. There's so many uh, scenarios. One way to do that is to link the planning schedule with the exercise schedule, and we've done that too. Uh, so we'll use an exercise as a forcing function to do planning together and to socialize with our leadership and our field membership on these planning concepts. That's a, a good examples are. Uh, we are updated in the imagined seismic zone earthquake plan in regions four, five, six, and seven right now. For that reason, we are timing a major exercise in 2019 to test that plan. The exercise is scheduled for next year, but it's forcing us and it's forcing our partners to, to participate in the planning effort in a meaningful way. We did the same exact staggered planning and exercise uh, scheduling concept for the Cascadia subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest, for the Alaska earthquake concept, uh, for the national level exercise 18, which we just conducted for a hurricane scenario in region three. Uh, region three is using that exercise as a means to update and maintain that's plan, their plan and to socialize those efforts. Uh, during an incident, our job is to convert to not just the crisis action planning mode, but to take translate and, and adapt those tasks that are in the plan and put them into our means for tasking departments and agencies in our own selves uh, during execution during an incident and then track our progress to it. We traditionally, during an incident, will track to what how well we are executing the plan. Do we execute all the, all the tasks? Do we have any complications of it? Do we need new ones in there? Uh, the plan is a good third-party objective uh, overseer uh, to make sure that we are executing appropriately. So, so, Josh, when you're developing these plans, which can be really complicated, uh, what are some of the pitfalls or challenges that the planners are facing uh, as they're developing the ultimate document? Well, I think the most common critique I have of our own planning uh, if, as they arise is, is plan it easy. Uh, we, we, we can't just merely restate what the roles and responsibilities that are already understood and not challenging our assumptions. We need to think outside the box. And if we fall into that trap of playing it easy, then the, the plan loses uh, its fidelity. 
Also, uh, unifying concepts and pre the preferences of multiple agencies and jurisdictions. Let's say you want to engage in a plan jointly with a state or jointly with a territory and with other lead federal agencies. Well, the other lead federal agencies have their own authorities and preferences and agenda that they want to pursue. Uh, your job is to get a good plan together, but not everyone agrees on what their concepts should be, and not that no one agrees what the goals and objectives should be. Not everyone agrees what the scenario should be. Uh, you And you want to have a plan that, that tests and applies all the supporting concepts that can come across from a variety of different situations. If you build a scenario in, a, in too difficult of a way, not everyone's going to be able to play and participate, and you hurt your ability to get participation from across the board. Uh, another one, another pitfall is, if we don't do enough information analysis, you need to do a great deal of research and analysis at the beginning. Uh, if you if you go short on that, then that will result in less actionable courses of action. If you have less actionable courses of action, then you have a, a, a less than desirable, not a usable plan at the end. And then at the end, you'll have to go back to the beginning and do the information information analysis all over again. So you really have to invest the time uh, into coordinate with with all the agencies, with the labs, with the subject matter experts, and do a lot of a lot of shoe leather diplomacy to make sure everyone's on the same page. Uh, and the last one is participation from all different types of functions. You know, the reason why the biological incident annex that we did is so important in my mind is because it integrated the emergency management community with the public health community. The most important element of the oil chem annex is its integration with the law enforcement community and the hazardous materials community with emergency management. Same thing with our counterterrorism plans, integrating with the law enforcement community. We need to branch out. We need to network with other communities, other disciplines and functions, integrate our concepts so that when the situation actually happens, we've already thought it through. We already know each other. We already trust each other. And it's not just hor that horizontal integration with other federal agencies. It's also the vertical working with the locals. A absolutely. Great point. We can't build a national plan and expect it to be executed in the field unless we nest it with the regions and with the locals. And we have to use the regional offices uh, in a real way uh, at, at, our head, at the headquarters level. We can't just do our own plan and have the regions do their own plan. We need to do it together. We need the plans to nest. And some, some efforts are going to be top-down, driven by policy, and a lot of them are going to be bottom-up, driven by realities of the situation, new scenarios that arise. And the, and the planning and complications that arise at the local level uh, are the best forcing functions for us to drive which national planning efforts we engage in. I want to ask you a question about something that pops up from time to time in different scenarios, and that's the issue of funding. Um, the Federal Emergency Management Agency has a disaster relief fund that it comes, we're able to utilize when disasters are declared or and even sometimes right before they're declared. So we have the funds kind of always available to us to for our response. But other agencies, when we're doing these sort of integrated planning with other agencies, they don't they don't have that funding. So does the funding aspect of the response ever come into play in the planning? It's probably the most important and stressful conversation that happens during every planning effort and at the beginning of every incident. Uh, if it's an earthquake or hurricane, we have the Stafford Act and we have the Disaster Relief Fund and we mission sign other departments and agencies to, to execute tasks that are necessary for the incident. And it's pretty seamless. We're, we're very good at it. 
But let's say if it's a different lead federal agency for a scenario that is not a Stafford incident, like a biological scenario, like an unaccompanied children migration situation, like an oil chemical incident, then you have not just lead federal agencies, different lead federal agencies, but you have different sources of funding authorized and required by Congress. So in some cases, the funding is completely dependent upon Congress to appropriate supplemental appropriations. If there's no supplemental appropriations, then departments and agencies have to execute their tasks and support those agencies with their own resources. And they usually start doing that, but those funds can dry up pretty quickly. So it's, it's a very careful consideration that we apply on what resources are available, what is practical, and how we manage different tasks being executed based from different sources of funding. So what, what ultimately makes a good plan? How do you know that it was uh, an effective plan or not? A really good question. Uh, first and foremost, you need buy-in. You need g- good, strong collaboration amongst your stakeholders and your senior leaders. If they don't buy into it, if they don't believe in it, if they don't uh, agree with the concepts, then it's not worth the paper it's written on. So that first, what's critical to that is to make sure you have a strong collaborative planning team uh, amongst all the lead agencies, amongst with your leadership at the very beginning, they need to own own that plan, uh, agree with it. Uh, so that and that's the, probably one of the most important parts about making a good plan. Uh, it also has to be feasible. You can't write a plan using capabilities that don't exist. You can't write a plan that that has a lot of uh, notional. Uh, activities that you hope would occur. If it's not feasible to be executed, if the resources don't exist, exist, if the capacity to execute does not exist, then again, it's not really executable. Uh, That'd be like, you know, just practically speaking, that's a situation where you have this event that causes massive power outage and you're depending, you're planning as if all of the radio stations are up and running. Or all the television stations are up and running. You also can't write a plan that says you have a generator for every 911 center, because we don't have enough generators, and it takes time to install them. So you can't plan that you would install a generator at every 911 center immediately. You have to take into account reality, logistics, and physics in the equation. It has to be feasible to drive your operations. Uh, it also has to be actionable. Uh, we can't play it safe uh, and just write what everyone should be doing. It needs to have optionality in it. It needs to have details to inform operational decision-making. It needs to have uh, detail to help us address complex situations, dynamic situations. The more detail we have on logistics throughput and how we transport a lot of resources through a limited throughput of ports and uh, ports of entry, the, the better we'll be able to make informed decisions during the incident. Uh, and lastly, it has to be user-friendly. Uh, if it's too big, if it's too cumbersome to read and manipulate during an incident, it's not going to be used during an incident. So we always have to challenge ourselves to find ways to make the plans easier to read and easy, easier to, to extrapolate, find and extrapolate and use the actual information in various sections quickly in a, in a high-pressure situation. And the way we test that is through exercises? It's through exercises. And we're, I, I like to think that every exercise results in incremental improvements in all of our plans. And one region might build a plan and we'll exercise it and it'll come up with key lessons learned and not only will that region update its plan but other regions are watching and they'll refine their plans to be improved based upon the situations so over time they're all constantly improving Uh, we're all 
finding new ways of, of doing planning better and, and, to, and to write down the actions in a more actionable way. A number of these plans are very scary scenarios. Uh, some of the scenarios might uh, result in some very prolonged inconveniences to citizens. Um, but ultimately, how do you help leaders in government uh, from the White House down understand what those impacts could be, help them uh, have empathy for the people that are going through this scenario uh, all ahead of time? How do you, you know, sort of socialize these plans and all of that goes with them with those senior leaders? Great question. You know, I, I've worked every disaster since 2007. And one that comes to mind uh, on your question, which is Hurricane Sandy. You know, our senior leaders the, uh, didn't really understand how the electrical sector worked, what the role of the utilities were versus the roles of the federal government, uh, what, where are areas we could support the restoration or where areas we could not support the restoration. Uh, and because our senior leaders didn't sufficiently understand how the sector worked and how power restoration worked, we, you know, we, there was some wheel spinning. Uh, there was, we, we, we went down some rabbit holes we should not have done. From that Hurricane Sandy experience, we've done power outage instant annexes to help do that. Again, the point of a plan is not just to outline our operations, but is to educate and inform our leadership and our operators on, on how this sector works or how this area of responsibility works or how this discipline works. And armed with that, there's plans like the Power Agents Annex and others, we are doing more and more exercises at the most senior leader levels. So even our senior official exercise at the White House, they're linked to the plan schedule. Uh, we had some White House exercises on uh, not just power outage, uh, but hurricanes in preparation for the hurricane season uh, in advance of radiological nuclear threats, uh, biological threats, cyber threats. And each of those, we're using those exercises and opportunity to not just educate them on the situation and the scenario and the threats, but also the pl operating plans and concepts that they're going to be charged to execute and uh, monitor and oversee. That example of Hurricane Sandy sounds like a perfect example of uh, a lessons learned that translates into new action and new informed planning. So as we look back on the 2017 hurricane season, is there anything that stands out in your mind that will be uh, sort of translated into new planning? Oh, yeah, yeah. So 2017 hurricane uh, hurricanes were really a, really stressed our system. Um, you know, the, we had plans for hurricane uh, in Texas. We had plans for a hurricane in, the, in, in Florida, and we had plans for a hurricane response in Puerto Rico and U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, we didn't sufficiently test or challenge our assumptions in some of those areas. So a good example is in Puerto Rico, our assumption was that we would stage in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And for the U.S. Virgin Islands plan, our assumption was that we would stage in Puerto Rico. We didn't challenge the idea that maybe we would both be hit, both islands, both territories would be hit with a Category 5 within weeks of each other. So it really pushed us to do just-in-time crisis action planning on how to move a limited a great amount of resources through a limited throughput, uh, air, through air, sea, uh, uh, transportation modes. Uh, so, but we did it during the incident. And so right now we're updating the Caribbean hurricane plan through our region two office uh, to take the lessons from the, those actual incidents, to take the resource phasing plan that we did during the incident 
and to refine it and improve it and, and immortalize it in the steady state uh, hurricane response plan. Uh, we are using, we're going to be using U.S. Transcom and the Department of Defense and, and enhanced modeling and, and, and analytical tools in the Department of Defense to do an analysis of our throughput capabilities or limitations and how we optimize what moves when and where to get the most uh, to these islands and uh, do the greatest good. Um, region 6 is updating their, their, their Texas hurricane plan. They do that on an annual basis. And then Region 4 is constantly updating their plans and, and, and exercising them with their states this season. As we look to uh, the 2018 hurricane season, I know that you have a very big job, and uh, both both jobs yeah, in planning as well as in the National Response Coordination Center that sort of coordinates the overall national response uh, with the FEMA region. So I want to thank you very much for spending time with us and uh, going over some of these really important planning efforts. Thanks for having me. We've linked to this episode on our FEMA Facebook page, and we invite you to join the conversation in the comments. If you have ideas for a future topic, send us an email at fema-podcast at fema.dhs.gov. If you would like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit fema.gov slash podcast. Mm-hmm.